Okay, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that in your grace you have continued on through history, preserved the Word of God, the gospel of salvation. And we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we ask that that indwelling Holy Spirit clarify in our minds uh, the great issues of Scripture. Teach us to think uh, your thoughts after you, that we can track with you through the pages of the Word of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Since we had a hiatus here, um, I wanted to go back in the notes to just point to certain things on table number 9 on page 127 um, because I'm afraid we'll lose the forest for the trees if we don't just review a a principle here. Um, What we're trying to do is look at how to relate the end of the history, historical period, the end of history as we know it, uh, and relate two stories. The story of Israel and the story of the church. And we recognize that these are two different stories. The church is a nation. A nation has laws, statutes, um, penal code, uh, what we call civil sanctions for non-compliance with the law. And the church doesn't because the church is not a nation. So these are two different kinds of entities. And the big thing is how how does history terminate with these two stories? And we said that the Israel story, as we see it in the Old Testament, looks forward to a time of tribulation. And that time of tribulation is that period of history which by suffering prepares the nation for the Messiah. And then the Messiah will come and set up this kingdom. So this is the messianic kingdom. But there's this tribulational period that precedes that to get two things in that tribulation. Number one is the nation Israel has to be willing to accept their Messiah. Now, all that wasn't clear in the Old Testament, but lots of the details. But by the time of the Gospels, and by the time of the end of Jesus' ministry, when he said, his closing words to the nation, uh, Israel, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Those were the last words of the Lord Jesus to the nation Israel. And so he gave them the ultimatum that until he is nationally welcomed, there will be no return. So, in order for him to be nationally welcomed, something's got to happen to the nation because the nation doesn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. So, whatever happens, the tribulation is a time when God applies the pressure in a geophysical and political way to that nation. But not just Israel's involved, but the Gentile nations are also involved in this tribulational period because the other purpose of the tribulation is to put pressure on all nations 
to decide whether they recognize <clears throat> Israel as the priestly nation. And that's why the Lord Jesus has the separation of the sheep and the goats. He's talking about <clears throat> judging people going into the millennial kingdom based upon their response to the word of God promulgated through Israel, through Jews. Well, that's one story. Now, on, on, on page 127, we have the story of the church. And the church looks forward to a time when it's going to be raptured with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the second story. There's an instantaneous transformation and resurrection that happens in a twinkling of an eye. So there's some future time in history when a very stupendous event is going to take place. So now the problem is, how do you tie these two together such that when you get done, it fits the text of the scriptures? And on page 127, I've tried to remind you once again of certain um, distinctions that are made in scripture about this future time period. And I've labeled the left side of that chart, remember, as the rapture, the right side of that chart as the return. And the return summarizes the idea of Jesus as the Messiah returning to his nation. It's a return of Messiah to the nation. And therefore, certain things are, meant and, and are mentioned there. Uh, if you skim down, um, there, several of the things I want you to remember as we review a little bit tonight and get going again is on the second row on the right side it's where it says judgment of nations with everyone in natural bodies and inauguration of the kingdom on earth. That's a state, a state of existence. So when this messianic kingdom begins, it begins with people in natural, not resurrected, in natural bodies. Why do we say that? Because people are going to have babies in the millennium. Resurrected people, there is no marriage. So, resurrected bodies don't reproduce. Mortal bodies reproduce, not resurrection bodies. So, we have other notices. We have death in the millennial kingdom. So, we know from that that the millennial kingdom prophecies are talking about people in natural bodies. The only other way of dealing with that, in the way the amillennialists sometimes do, is to allegorize those passages and say, well, it just it really doesn't mean that. It's, it's just emblematic of the eternal state. But you can't get so greasy with the way you interpret the text here. It doesn't allow you to do that. Um, another thing to notice on that right column, which is important, is about the one, two, three, fourth one down, where it says, unbelievers are removed and believers are left. And that's the motif, John the Baptist, the baptism of fire, and so on. And notice who is taken there. The people who are taken are taken away because the people who are left are going to do what? They're going to be the people that are the nucleus for the kingdom of God on earth. So you wouldn't want to take the believers away from in order to set this up. However, on the left side, you have the fact that believers are removed and unbelievers are left. So there's well, the point of, of table number nine is this, that if you look at all the scriptures 
You, you seem to be dealing here with two distinct things that are happening. One thing that's happening is Jesus is doing something and terminating the church. The other thing, the return, is his program of ending history with regard to Israel and the nations. So that's the problem that as you work with these pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, three-quarter trib, that's what's going on in the background. It's trying to get these two stories together. Now, we've already dealt with the post-tribulational people. And uh, on pages 126 through 128, one, and one, top of 129, we dealt with the idea that this, they, their idea, the post-tribulationists, post means after, after the tribulation, the rapture will occur. So their picture is that you have Daniel's 70th week, and then at the end of Daniel's 70th week, you have both the rapture and the return, the end of both Israel and the church. That's the post-tribulation. In other words, what they're doing is they're saying that those are two events that are almost... They're, they're two parts of the same event, and they're very quick. And we gave you some reasons why that particular synthesis has problems. And we said one of those things, uh, uh, well, we, we won't go through all that because we've got too much to do, but we've gone through that and reviewed it on page 128 and so forth. So I think you should be familiar with it. Remember, basically what it is, is that you've got the church existing during this entire period of the tribulation when the Bible says the church is going to be exempt from the wrath of God. Now, you've got to do something about this. And the way post-tribulationists either do it one or two ways, there's only two ways of doing it, and that is that you have to somehow protect the church from the wrath of God during this period of time. But the problem with doing that is, when you book, read the book of Revelation, do you find believers in the book of Revelation not affected by the wrath of God? You find them persecuted, martyred, and everything else. So it doesn't fit. The second way they do it is to consider this whole period not the wrath of God. And just the wrath of God is the last few minutes of the tribulation. Well, that doesn't fit. So, there's a number of issues here that have come up. Plus the fact, as I said, you've got other things because part of this church story isn't just the rapture. You've got the Bema Seat Judgment and you've got the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Two more events that have to happen. And they have to happen before the Messiah comes back to his kingdom. Because when he comes back to his kingdom, what is he bringing with him? He's bringing with him he's gone with his bride. He's bringing with him the saints in white robes. So all this has had to have taken place here pretty fast. So that's the problem with the post-tribulation position. Then we went to the three-quarter position. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling it three-quarter tribulationism, not pre-wrath, although that's the title of the book that outlines the position, one of the two books that outlines the position. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because if you look carefully, all of these events are pre-wrath. There's not one of these positions that isn't pre-wrath, meaning that the church is, is taken out of prior to the wrath of God because they're constrained by that scripture. Post-tribulation might be said in some of its forms not to do that, but anyway. 
the deal with the three-quarter tribulation is, again, here's the period, seven years, same period, and what they do is they recognize there's this halfway point where the abomination of desolation occurs and so on, but they place the rapture over here in the second half, in the second half of the tribulation. So that's why we call it the three-quarter. You've got two quarters here and one quarter there, so it's three-quarter. That's why we call it the three-quarter tribulation position. And we start, we diagram that on figure eight on page 129. So that shows you what happens there. Now, if you look at that diagram, there's certain things that have to fit. To make that diagram work, to make that scheme work, you have to set it up so that the wrath of God occurs only in this last period. So that constrains how you're going to move the text around and the details. You've got you, This is your anchor here. The, the wrath of God is that last quarter. Well, what happens in the diagram, if you notice, is that the seals, the, the, there's, there's three series of judgments in the book of Revelation. The breaking of the seals, there's the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, or the vile judgments. And there's seven of each. And there's various arguments about how these all fit together. But the point is, there are these three judgments. And the seal judgments are the first set. And you'll notice on the diagram, figure eight, the first four seal judgments are placed in the first half of the tribulation. Why? Notice that in the second part, over here, seal judgments five and six occur. Now, why do they do that? Because of the sixth seal, the sixth seal, there's a statement made that behold the wrath of God. So that's an explicit text. Now we've got the text saying this, the wrath of God is here. So that's why if you hold to the three-quarter position, you have to have the first five seals that way, and you have to make the seventh seal on the other side of that point. And that's where they locate the rapture. So we're working our way through this, and if you look on the top of page... Um, Oh, look at the bottom of page 129 first. And follow, follow the text there with me. Daniel's 70th week is divided in three parts instead of the customary two halves. Normally, most prophetic schemes of lots and lots of different schools don't do this. This is absolutely unique to the three-quarter position of making the, the seventh week in terms of these, these elements. It's usually made just two. And that's just something to observe about it. Um, the term tribulation, top of page 130, the term tribulation as a title for the seven-year period is dropped. And the label, the word tribulation, is now attached to this thing right here. That, second, that first half of the second part. Tribulation and the meaning of tri the, the term is changed to exclude any of God's judgments. Now, why do they have to do that? Look at the diagram. Where is the rapture of the church? Rapture of the church is located in this scheme right here. Well, if you have the rapture of the church, 
who is still on earth at this point in time? The church. So you can't have the wrath of God there. So they've got to make the wrath of God over here. Well, but the tribulation is spoken of the way they interpret Matthew 24, because they've identified the rapture as occurring in Matthew 24. So Jesus said the great tribulation is coming. So now you've got to make the great tribulation this side of the rapture. But if you do that, you can't have the tribulation being the wrath of God. So you've got to make the wrath of God on one side of the rapture and the tribulation on the other side. So that's one of the problems here. The definition of tribulation is required to be changed. Now, let's turn in the Bible to Revelation chapter 6. Because this is an anchor text with this particular position. Again, um, remember this is not um, a class in eschatology, although it's getting to sound that way. Um, if it were, we'd go through this in far more detail. But all I'm trying to do is get you acquainted with these different positions so you at least can recognize them when you read things and when you have Bible study. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. Now, th- this is what is spoken of by verses, verse, the people in verse 15. So if you go up to verse 15 first and read through verse 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and free men. So these are universal terms. These are chunks of human society. Everybody, the rich, the poor, the free, the slaves. The idea here is that everybody in the human race is saying this. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now let's just think about this for a moment. Let's think about this apart from just all this detail. Just imagine this moment in history. Here you have millions of people on the planet, different nations, different people, utterly different circumstances, some living in cities, some live in the country, some very well educated, some no education, people speaking all different kind of languages. But this text tells you that they all have a fear. And not only do they have a fear, they know the source of the fear. Because notice how in verse 16 they ascribe the source of the fear. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What does that tell you about the hearts of the people who would say such a thing? Do they have a relationship with God? Absolutely not. They, as sinners, are in deep and profound fear of the wrath of Almighty God. It's fear. I mean, what greater fear can you have than what you see expressed in this passage of Scripture? Everybody's afraid. They're afraid. And not only are they afraid, they know exactly what they're afraid of. See, all, all the veils and the curtains and the sweet words and all the baloney talk, all of it's brushed aside. 
Now, now sin emerges. Now, everybody's really shooting straight here. We fear God, and we fear that one that sits on his throne. No, no, no ambiguity about who Jesus is in this hour. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Now, let's stop the baloney talk. Let's get straight. Everybody knows who Jesus is at this point in history. And they know they're in trouble. They know they're under the wrath of God. They know they're sinners. And not only are they sinners, but the time for escaping from the consequences of sin is rapidly coming to a halt here. So that's the recognition. And then in verse 17, they make the statement about the wrath of God. The great day of their wrath has come. Notice how theologically precise the statement is. These are unbelievers now. They're not, only, they're not Unitarians anymore. I mean, they recognize distinctions in the Godhead. The, the, the day of their, plural, their wrath has come. And who's going to stand this? So, the wrath of God. So, what happens in three-quarter tribulationism is that this verse, 17, is said to be a prediction of the next seal. That is, the great day of the wrath has a, is about to begin, is the way this verse 17 is interpreted in this view. This is the end of the sixth seal and the beginning of the seventh. Okay, now, the problem here is that historically, most people have said that verse 17 is retrospective, not forecasting. It's looking back, and it's the verses 16 and 17 are expressing a conclusion of people who have sat there and watched seal after seal after seal judgment, and the world is unraveling here, politically, geophysically, in every way. And they're watching this, this, this sights that have never been seen before in history. And they're coming to the conclusion from the first prior judgments that the wrath of God has come. This is the day of the wrath of God. They're becoming aware of this. It's not that this hasn't been the wrath of God and now it's really going to be the wrath of God. It's rather, it's a conclusion from these previous settlements. But the three-quarter position holds that verse 17 is prophetic. It's an announcement of what is going to happen. And the question, of course, is, is how, how would unbelievers be prophets and know that the wrath of God is going to come different than what they've already experienced? Okay, again, the second paragraph on page 130. Since the wrath of God is mentioned in Revelation 6.17 in connection with the sixth seal, that seal must be pushed forward into the second half of Daniel's 70th week. Customarily, the sixth seal has been understood to occur about the midpoint. Okay? But now, because of this idea of wrath, they've got he, he, Rosenthal and Van Kampen have to push it push the sixth seal halfway through the last half of the tribulation. Okay? By pushing that seal forward in the 70th week, little time remains for the seventh seal, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. Now everything's getting squashed in that last, three, the last fourth quarter. 
because you, you pushed everything up that way. As a result, there's not enough room in the three-quarter trip position to get the bowls done by the end of the 70th week. So part of the, their position is they've got to spill those over into a 75-day period after Christ returns when he's trying to clean up and get things ready for the millennium. And that's kind of incongruous. So that's one of the problems. And that's well, I know this may frustrate some of you who aren't acquainted with prophecy and don't worry about all these details if that's where you're at right now. You don't have to, you know, this, this presumes... Um, a knowledge, a lot, quite a bit of knowledge of the scriptures. But what I'm, if you don't get anything out of this discussion, at least get this out of it. That when you change an interpretation of a verse over here, you're going to change other things. You can't play with a text over here and just interpret any way you want and not have repercussions across the board. So that's the way you're dealing with a system, an integrated system here. And if you do that, it's fine. I'm not saying don't examine things. But just understand, if you examine the verse, and it could mean this or it could mean that, you better think to yourself, well, if it means that, then what happens to this verse, this verse, and this verse? That's the way you want to think about these things. Okay. Continuing on page 130. Let's turn to Matthew 24, verse 22. This is another text that has an unusual spin to it in the three-quarter position. If you feel bogged down by these details, just understand, when we're all done with these views, we're going to go into what the, the application of prophecy to the Christian life. And that'll be very practical. And you'll see then that this eschatology stuff does have some practical implications. But in Matthew 24, verse 22, here's a statement that Jesus makes that the three-quarter position takes up, runs with it in a way that no one ever ran with it before and comes to a very interesting conclusion. In Matthew 24, verse 22, Jesus has been discussing the horrors of this time. Verse 19, Woe to those who are with child, those who nurse babes in those days. For pregnant women and women who are nursing, pray that your flight not be in the winter and pray that it not be in a Sabbath. Now, when you have to get out of Jerusalem, remember Matthew 24 deals with Jews in Jerusalem, not Greeks in the Aegean area. The whole context of Matthew 24 is right there at the temple. And he's talking about fleeing. Now, why would it be bad for the women who are pregnant and women who are nursing? We're talking about mass uh, refugee situation here. They're told to evacuate from the city of Jerusalem. Well, it's travel. And it was difficult for a pregnant woman and difficult for women who would be nursing their babies in that day. They didn't have SUVs to go out into the desert with here. We're talking about people having to walk put on the back of a mule. Get out of Jerusalem, Jesus says, and you better pray there's not going to be on a Sabbath either because in the Sabbath you've got rules that say how far you can travel and how you can travel or how you can't travel is a better way of putting it. So he's telling you, you just better pray that it doesn't happen under these circumstances because this stuff, he says, I, we really are talking serious stuff here. 
and you want to be able to be flexible and move when you have to move. So then he says, verse 21, there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever shall. Now that great tribulation traditionally has referred to this second period of time here. But in the pre-wrath rapture, it can't refer to the whole second half. Why? Because you've already taken up half of the second half with the wrath of God. So now what are we going to do with the Great Tribulation? We've got to shorten it. We've got to compress it so that instead of being three and a half years long, it's one-half times three and one-half long. That is, it's in this period. Now, how is this done in this view? Because of verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. So the idea there is that it's not 42 months long. It's been cut short. Why? To alleviate suffering. All right. Now, now we're going to go through the, uh, the critique of this viewpoint. Starting with the last paragraph on page 130, here's the first point. And here's the, here's the problems that this position runs into. All positions run into problems. It's just you have to pick your problems and minimize them. So here's the three-quarter position. And remember, again, I'll draw a diagram. Here's the beginning of the tribulation midpoint, end point, and there's the rapture. Rapture, return. So the three-quarter tribulation, on a positive note, does distinguish the rapture from the return. So at least they got that straight, that those are two different things. Here's the first problem. Three-quarter tribulationism starts with some bad exegesis and winds up, because it has bad exegesis, it winds up creating secondary problems that nobody else has. This view uh, it wasn't noticed when it first came out because people read the book and said, oh, isn't that a neat idea? But after people began to study it, they began, wait a minute here. We got, we're creating more problems than we're solving. And so, here, here I'm going to go through some of those. From Table 8, we observe that Israel looked forward throughout the Old Testament with dread to a time of tribulation. Okay? Remember, we, what did we do back weeks and weeks ago? We went through Old Testament history. Remember? And I was showing you out of Old Testament how this occurred. Okay. Old Testament revelation supplies sufficient information to understand clearly the meaning of the term tribulation. During Old Testament history, God caused judgments to come. Now let's just pause here and draw upon your memory banks of what went on in the Old Testament. When God judged Israel, what were some of the ways he judged it? Well, he judged it by famine, did he not? Elisha, days of famine. He judged Israel by sending armies from Babylon in. Prophets said that's a judgment of God. So, in the, in the Old Testament, the judgments of God consisted of both the wrath expressed indirectly 
that is, both indirect judgments, which would be men, armies, and direct judgments, which would be things like famine, earthquakes, disease, and so on. Very, very clear. You want proof of this, go back to the original Mosaic Covenant and find the place where cursings are described. Leviticus 26, Matthew 28. And when you look there, what do you find? Both direct and indirect judgments are called cursings. So there should be no problem, if you know the Old Testament, coming into this discussion, that when the wrath of God occurs, it can occur either indirectly through people and armies, or it can occur directly through nature. So, continuing, bottom of page 130. During Old Testament history, God caused various judgments that prepared Israel for ultimate judgment or tribulation yet to come. As we pointed out in Table 8, these Old Testament divine interventions consisted of both human armies and geophysical catastrophes. Therefore, three-quarter tribulations of attempt to separate the 70th week events into human invasions and persecutions on one side, and they occur in the first two sections, and divine geophysical catastrophes occur only in the third day of the Lord thing is artificial and unbiblical. What they have to do, remember it gets back to they can't have the wrath of God prior to the rapture point. But they've got the tribulation prior to the rapture point. So how do you have the tribulation prior to the rapture point without getting hit with the wrath of God? So what these folks do is they redefine wrath of God to refer only to what kind of judgments? Direct miraculous, natural interventions. See the picture? So that everything that occurs here is the wrath of men. That's the idea. Now, we're in Matthew. So, let's uh, turn to page 131 and turn to Matthew 24, 7. Now, we're talking about this earlier period. What do you observe in verse 7 that is not due to human agencies? Look at verse 7. These are judgments. Yeah, there's famines and earthquakes. Now, are those caused by people? Or are those caused directly by God? They're caused directly by God. But this school has to somehow get around verse 7 because verse 7 is talking about back here even, not even in the Great Tribulation. But you've got the wrath of God here. See the problem? You can't get away from this thing. It just, it's like glue. It's just flypaper. You step on it and it just sticks to your shoe. So whatever you do with these prophecies in here, you wind up getting stuck with this wrath of God issue. And it doesn't solve the problem to try to play games with redefining what wrath means. So that's the first criticism of the three-quarter view. It violates the Old Testament custom, norm, and standard that God's wrath, by either direct or indirect channels, can't be separated into two channels. Now on page 131, we go to the second item of critique of this position. 
the Old Testament concept of tribulation includes the metaphor of birth pains. The Old Testament metaphor of birth pains includes all of Daniel's 70th week, not part of it. Jesus explicitly labeled the first part of the 70th week as a time of, and look at verse 8 of Matthew 24. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He's talking about the first half of Daniel's week here. In other words, the baby, the kingdom, is being delivered, but there's a birth pain going on here. And Jesus is saying, here, right in here is the beginning of the birth pains. He explicitly labeled the first part of the 70th week as a time of the beginning of birth pains. Paul confirms the usage in 1 Thessalonians 5. The birth pain metaphor encompasses all seven years. The term tribulation as a title for the entire 70th week is legitimate. That's why it's used. It's, it's, yes, the scriptures don't use that word in a technical sense. But the reason theologians and Bible students use the word is because what else are you going to call it? It's, it's 70 weeks, it's seven, seven years here of hell on earth. So you've got to have a name for it. You know, you don't like tribulation, call it hell on earth. But call it something um, that, that fits what's going on. So the problem is that, that uh, you've, got a, you've got the word tribulation has a meaning explicitly connected with birth pains and pregnancy and delivery of the baby. And it's, and it's used throughout the whole 70th week. That's the second criticism. That is that all of the 70th week is considered to be a childbirth. It's as though the universe goes through what a woman goes through when she delivers her baby. It's as though the whole universe is pregnant with a kingdom. And, and it goes through this paroxysm of delivery to get this kingdom born. And to show that it's, it's not just people going through it, the whole physical universe does this. There's famines, there's earthquakes, the sun and the moon act differently. Um, uh, meteorites come to the earth. There's chaos and a there's astral chaos. So it's as though the whole universe throbs at one with man, trying to get to this point of delivering. Third the third criticism in the next paragraph. Three-quarter tribulation correctly holds that the expression great tribulation begins after the midpoint. Because of its confused notion of tribulation, it can't allow the tribulation to last a full 42 months, the Great Tribulation. So we're, we're zeroing in on the third criticism, and we're saying that, look, it's talking correctly so that the Great Tribulation begins right here. We agree with that. But as you see, they can't permit the tribulation to go. They've got to compress it to get it on the other side of the rapture so we can get the wrath of God over here. And they use Matthew, that verse I showed you, verse 22, to say it's been shortened. Okay? Now watch what happens. This is the kind of stuff you get into here. To try to resolve the dilemma, Rosenthal seizes upon Jesus' remark about the Great Tribulation being shortened. 
interpreting this remark as a modification to the prior announced 42-month period. In other words, God announced the period 42 months long in Daniel 12. What Rosenthal is saying is that that 42-month announcement has been changed and shortened. Okay? He's, whereas other guys would come out and say that the, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24-22 is that 42 months uh, is a short period of time. We could have had the tribulation last longer, but we, we shortened it to 42 months, so you only have to worry about 42 months. But Rosenthal says, no, that's not what it means. He's saying it was announced at 42 months, and then after that announcement, God chose to shorten it further. So is there the original shortening, or there is a second shortening going on here? Well, if there's a second shortening, now you create a problem. If you follow with me again in the text. Interpreting this remark as a modification to the prior announced 42-month period, he, he concludes the Great Tribulation will last less than 42 months. He's got to, to get that room in there. But another problem now arises. The text of Revelation 12:7. So turn to Revelation 12:7. So the Revelation chapter 12 is talking about what's going on here in the tribulation. And this is a whole section that deals with this last period. There was war in heaven... Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. You see, the, 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 the horror of what happens at the end of history reveals how sin has affected the physical universe out there that we look at every night when we look up and see the stars and the moon. We look as though outer space is peaceful. But the picture you get in the Bible is that outer space has angelic warfare going on in it. It's not just on earth. This thing, this sin issue, has spread through and contaminated the whole cosmos. That's why it can't be solved by a political program. I mean, something like communism is going to solve the world's problem. That was the big dream of Marx. I'm going to solve everybody's problems because we're going to get change the government and get a new policy. You know, if you've got a problem the whole Milky Way, the policy in Washington, D.C. doesn't have much relevance. See, that's the big picture the Bible wants us to see. That sin is so, so deep into reality that it is a joke to think that you can ever get the heaven on earth, heaven on earth, the kingdom to come, that you can ever get that except by divine intervention. Except by divine intervention. So there's war in heaven and the angels against the angels. This is, this is the stuff of epics. Can you think of Empire Strikes Back and that sort of thing? And we say, well, those are cute little dramas. Well, actually, that's kind of neat. But what propels men to write epic literature, whether it's The Lord of the Rings in an imaginary medieval-type context, or whether it's Empire Strikes Back in, a, in an astral fantasy, what, what grips the heart of men and women to write those stories is deep down 
we know there's a cosmic drama going on around us. Deep down, we're aware of that. Now, we all suppress it to various degrees. Even the people that write those stories probably suppress it. But you see, when the creativity of the human soul erupts into, into artistry, they can't help but bear witness to the fact that we know there's something like this going on. And it's got to be resolved. And so you see those themes in Star Wars. It was eloquent. I mean, it had a lot of paganism in it. Yeah, the Force and so on being impersonal. But in spite of all the paganism, there was the stories of the councils of, of people from different galaxies discussing. You got that council right there in the Book of, uh, Book of Kings in the Old Testament. It's the angels that come together for an angelic council meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're sitting on his left hand and his right hand. He calls the council meeting and he says, look, I've got a problem down on planet Earth. I've got this dimwit down there called Ahab. And I want to grease his slide. So who's going who's gonna to get the, the grease gun and take care of him? And so there's a discussion. The Hebrew text says the angel is sitting there discussing. Now this would be an amazing story if you could just portray this as a sort of 60 minutes on, on what did the angels do last night. Um, they have this meeting and they sit there and they discuss the whole issue. The Hebrew indicates that there's a discussion that goes on. Some angels say, well, let's do it this way. Another angel says, no, I got a better idea. We'll do it this way. And finally, one angel stands before this cosmic council of angels and he stands before the Lord and he says, I will do it. I will become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord says, fine, go do it. Now, can you imagine being a witness to that kind of a story? And this one angel gets inside of and influences hundreds of people. And you ever wonder why an idea catches on and a whole mob gets involved with an idea and it's the same idea here, it's the same idea. What's gripped these people, we say? There's an evidence of it right there. One demonic force. And somehow, like an amoeba, they can split. And all of a sudden, they go into this person, this person, this person, this person. And they're, all of a sudden, they're in agreement. Christ. And we have, that's why we have to get serious. That's what these passages, if you don't get anything else out of them, they're, they're witnessing to the com terrible complexity of what sin has done in our creation. And the cosmic dimension of when the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior, it's not just talking about saving you from um, a few pimples here. It's talking and not even just saving you personally. When we say Jesus is Savior, we are talking about things that impact the angelic realm, that impact the physical cosmos, out to millions of light years. That's what we're talking about here. This, this thing that Jesus does is not just something to sing about on planet Earth. It has a cosmic dimension to it. So, in the middle of this testimony, we have, we have the, the Michael and the war and the angels. They were not strong enough and there was no longer place for them in heaven. Now verse 9. Amazing event here. The great dragon was thrown down. 
and the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Now, do you see what makes it hell on earth during the tribulation? Do you see why the Bible says this will be a period of history that no historian has ever seen before? No human being, no man, no woman, no child, no one has ever witnessed what is about to take place on earth at this point in time. Because at this point in time, Satan himself, with all of his angels, gathered from all the areas of the cosmos, are suddenly concentrated right here on planet Earth, because this is, the, this is the focal point. This is the fulcrum of the universe and the plan of God. So here they are. They all come down. And notice in verse 9, the middle of the verse, what Satan does. Notice one of his titles. It says, he's devil, he's Satan, and he deceives the whole world. That's one of the functions. The whole world is operating with deception. There's a deceiver. You say, well, how, did, how, do, how do we people screw up so bad in history? How do we get these massive movements going? How can people be so stupid to buy into communism? How? And, and, and that collapsed. I mean, these, uh, communism took uh, a country that had more natural resources than any other country in the world and they wound up, they couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't drill oil. They couldn't fix the tractors on their farms. They couldn't go into a store and evaluate the value of things on the shelf. They had to be told by what some committee said it was worth. Look at what they did. All in the name of, we're going to bring paradise in on earth. Yeah, you brought paradise, all right. You destroyed one of the largest country, more acreage than any other country, which was the Soviet Union, more riches, more natural resources, everything that you got, gold, oil, whatever it was, Soviet Union had it, and they couldn't even get it together to feed themselves. Now that is stupidity. And you can come to places like Haiti, where we send missionaries down to Haiti, and the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. You know why Haiti's poor? Because 200 years ago, or 100 years ago, they had a tree tax. And so, what are you going to do to decrease your tax bill? You're going to cut your trees down, right? You've got 100 trees and you're taxing every tree? Well, I'm going to get rid of that tax load real quick. Get me a saw. So they chop down their trees. Well, now in a tropical climate with heavy rain, what do you suppose happened after they chopped the trees down? Erosion. All the soil washed into the ocean. Now they can't feed themselves and can't grow stuff. Duh. What causes the human race to get a case of the stupids in so many places and be so consistently stupid? He who deceives the whole world. We have a group of nations right now in New York who can't get along inside their own countries and they're thinking we're going to bring in world peace with a, with a council in, on the east side of New York City when you've got revolutions, you've got disputed elections. I mean, here we are, great democracy. We can't even count our votes. It looked like a banana republic in the last election. And this goes on all over the place. The problem is bigger than you and me and all the good intentions. 
That's why we need a returning, catastrophic transformation by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what's talked about here. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. I wonder what that voice was, whether it was the Holy Spirit or what. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. Now take a, load, take a look at that one. Take a good look at that one. What is Satan doing about you tonight, if you're a believer? It says he accuses us before the throne day and night. How is he able to accuse you? How is he able to accuse me? Because we sin. Every time we sin, he's like a prosecuting attorney. Some little tattletale uh, twit that goes into the presence of God and says, Oh, do you see what he did yesterday? Oh, do you see what she did yesterday? God, you have no business allowing these kind of people in your presence. And this goes on day and night. Look what it says. Day and night. Now, what is the legal response to this? What right do we have to come before the throne of grace boldly? Because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only because of that? It reduces down to the simplicity of the gospel. The answer Satan has to get stuck in his face again and again is, it's not our righteousness. I don't stand boldly before the throne of grace on the good works that I've done, and you don't either. We stand there because of what Jesus has done. And that has to be the point. So, you can see all this comes out here. He accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of what? The blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, did not love their life even to death. Now, in context, these are special believers here. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe, that's a loaded verse. If we had time, we could spend about half an hour exegeting what that means. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. See, there's the short time. See? Short time. Because he's going to get creamed here a little bit. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, who was it that gave birth to the male child? Israel. So, guess where the assault is going to happen here when Satan and his angels come down to earth? They are fixing to do away. Now, think about it strategically. Why would it be neat if Satan could destroy Israel? If Satan destroyed Israel, there would be no nation to say what? To the Lord Jesus. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So as Satan comes about, apparently what he says to himself, okay, you knocked me out of heaven, but I'll tell you what, I can still throw sand in your gears. I can still jam your machine, God, because I can go down here and I'll eliminate Israel and then watch your Messiah come back. See? Hatred. Brilliant hatred. Brilliant, intelligent hatred for the things of God. And when the dragon saw he was thrown down, he did this. And two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished. Now, notice this. Where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. 
that is three and a half years. So this whole tribulation period is 42 months recorded in, in Revelation chapter 12, which was written before or after the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus. After. So the tribulation, which is announced in Daniel, was 42 months. And if it was really true that Jesus said it was shortened to less than 42 months, question, how come in Revelation chapter 12, it's back at 42 months again? And the answer is, because it isn't shortened to less than 42 months. 42 months is the shortening. It could have been longer than 42 months, but God kept it to only 42 months so that the saints could endure in the elect's sake. So see, that's another example, this paragraph, of why this, this view sets up all these other problems that we didn't have before we started this whole thing. Now we've got more problems. The idea of exegesis is to try to reduce the problem, not keep on increasing it. Okay, down at the bottom of page 121, a fourth criticism. So what we said in number three here is that the tribulation, the great tribulation has to be equal to 42 months. And we know that because Revelation 12 confirms it after Matthew 24. So we go down to the bottom of page 131 in conclusion tonight. We'll only have time to do this one. We'll have to continue next time. Other examples of unnecessary secondary problems created by the three-quarter tribulation could be cited. Let's look at a few. This view insists that the cry of unbelievers after the opening of the sixth seal, that the wrath of God has come, is an anticipatory comment, not a conclusion from past experience. If it were a conclusion from past unbelievers' experience, then that would mean the wrath of God had already come, right? We went through that verse. How did the people who are calling for the rocks to fall on them know that it was the wrath of God? Because they had experienced the previous seal judgments. Well, if they have experienced the previous seal judgments and they're coming to the conclusion that those previous seal judgments were the wrath of God, then the wrath of God must be prior to the seventh seal. So we have the problem then of the fact that the wrath of God precedes the seventh seal. And if it does, now this scheme doesn't work. That would, in turn, top of page 132, wait, uh, wait a minute, uh, am I in the right place? Yeah. At the top of 132, we'll finish here. That, in turn, would require the rapture to precede the sixth seal or earlier. Logic would then declare that the three-quarter tribulation position collapses into the older mid-trib position to be discussed in the next section. How can Revelation... 6, verses 16 and 17, be an anticipatory comment. How would unbelievers recognize that a completely new kind of catastrophe was about to occur, a catastrophe directly from God, rather than the previous catastrophes that were supposedly from man alone? So anyway, that, that's, we'll go through this, we'll finish it next time, and get into what is actually the forerunner of the three-quarter position. Years before the three-quarter position ever even was a thought, Mid, the mid-trib position was there. So we'll, we'll finish up with the three-quarter and then we'll go to the mid-trib. But I hope as we go through this, we have these little times to enjoy some of these texts that, we, that become critical, the discussion. And maybe some of you who aren't acquainted with this 
area of the Bible, uh, you'll get stimulated to do some reading and thinking and praying about it. Because this is your history. This is the history of the human race, folks. This isn't just a weather forecast that might not come true. This is God's decree that shall come true, period. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that history has a purpose, that as horrible as these times appear to come, we know that they are for our good. We thank you that the church can be raptured, that it is not subject to the wrath of God. And we pray that our witness would be such that people would trust in you and be spared from having to go through this horrible experience. Yet, Father, we know that because of the vastness of the rebellion inside your creation, the vastness of the war into the dark principalities and powers in the angelic realm, that there have to come about these events, these purging events, these catastrophes, these awesome things that we know very little about. And yet, Father, we know that you are a God of justice, and ultimately you will separate the good from the evil, and you will create a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying, because the former things have passed away and permanently passed away. And for this we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'll have a few minutes before all the flakes accumulate. Our two questioner, leading questioners, we only have one leading questioner here. Two of them are missing. Well, that's a good question, uh, Dave, that um, why is there this degree of differences? And I, I think one of the reasons is we, we think this way, but um, let, let me back up a minute. There's this sort of funny quip that you'll hear in Christian circles that one of the evidences for God's existence is the church because no one else could possibly um, run the thing. Um, and that, I mean, it was, it's a funny thing, but it actually is true that th there's um, the church, we act like dumb sheep, uh, have for a number of centuries. And, and that's what we're called in the Bible, is sheep. Um, but in all fairness, I think you have to say that, uh, and I think I mentioned this last time when, when you brought this up, that it's easy for us in the 21st century, looking back and saying, gee, it's obvious what the gospel was. I mean, why did the Roman Catholics and the Protestants have to fall out, you know? Um, it wasn't to them, because 
in the the church is growing through history, and the church grows by getting it together. But the act of getting it together is really tough. Um, the early church, like we've reviewed, had 400 years before they really thought it through uh, as to who Jesus was. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we look back and we say, well, isn't it obvious? Well, it's obvious to us only because we were told it in clear terms and we were guided to that understanding. And I, I think it's like in school sometimes, you know, um, after you've learned your elementary arithmetic, then, gee, that equation's obvious. But does someone walking in the room at that level, they're going to say, well, gee, I don't know what that's all about. So it's, it's pedagogical. And I think that's why I've urged you all to think of all this disagreement that's going on in eschatology as part of the divine pedagogy, that, that we're at that period in church history where this has become an issue and it's being worked out. And the process of working it out is to try everything that doesn't work. And by process of elimination, you find after a while, well, gee, that doesn't work. We tried that. That doesn't work. We tried that. So now, what does work around here? And that process takes time and thought. This is hard stuff. This is, um, um, it's not easy material. The passages uh, that deal particularly in the book of Revelation uh, do have a lot of symbology in them. Um, we're talking about things that haven't yet taken place in history. Uh, maybe it would help in our thinking about this question you raised would be to think how an Old Testament person who lived at the time of Jesus, who didn't know yet about Jesus, he's living there, he hears maybe some messages from John the Baptist, but in his head he remembers what the rabbis have taught about the Messiah from the Old Testament. Never met Jesus yet. So now he's thinking there, and he knows that the Messiah from Isaiah 53 uh, has to suffer. But then he also knows from Daniel 7 and these other passages that Messiah is going to reign in glory and wonder. So how does he put those two together? And they had a hard time putting it together. In fact, um, history tells us that there were elements in Judaism that actually held the two Messiahs. They could not get those things together, and they held to a son of Joseph, which was the suffering Messiah, and the son of David, which was the guy that would come and be the grandest king. Um, but we now know that it wasn't two Messiahs. It was two events in the life of one Messiah. And to us, in retrospect, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's obvious. Well, it wasn't then. So I think that's our problem right now is that we're heading into this history. I mean, it's going to be obvious the people living in the Millennial Kingdom what happened. And they'll probably think back, geez, what a bunch of dorks you guys were um, that didn't get this together. I mean, it's so clear to us, well, yeah, you're Monday morning and we're in the football game on Saturday afternoon. We're in the middle of it here. So I think that's why it's true. And that's why you have to exercise caution and, and not make unnecessary um, hostile comments to other Christians who hold these positions. The best way of, of um, discussing them, I think, is to ask questions uh, instead of saying, oh, well, you're an idiot. That doesn't promote fellowship, exactly. Um. <laughs>
But, but that, that's a good point. Lynn has brought up the issue that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so why is, in the light of the indwelling Holy Spirit is supposed to lead us into all truth, why is it that all this stuff goes on? And I think the answer, Lynn, is to look back, I mean, as I said to Dave, what we're seeing today in the eschatological discourses we've seen before in the other areas. We saw it in the Middle Ages over soteriology. We saw it over Christology. So whatever it is that's causing the problem, it's, been, it's not just us in our generation. It's been featured in all the generations of the church, which then makes you suspect that there's a method in the Holy Spirit's madness of teaching. Good teachers will sometimes let their students go down wrong trails to teach them something. That's part of teaching. And I think that's the way, I'm certain that's the way the Holy Spirit has did it in his own way in the Old Testament, for example. Um, ideally, I guess you could argue, uh, correctly so, that if we were perfectly attuned to the Holy Spirit and didn't sin, get out of fellowship, and waste time, um, we probably would make a lot more rapid progress in following him. But I think that in the light of who we are, um, flubbering saints, um, the Holy Spirit lets us kind of wander around a little bit as far as the teaching goes. Good teachers will do that. You know, it's, it's hard when you're a teacher to sit there when you know the answer and you want somebody to learn and you're trying to make it as clear as you can that you get frustrated when they get frustrated and don't get it. And sometimes, I'm sure you've had it in the prison, where you have put so much time into a lesson, you've got it so clear, and then after you get done, somebody will say something and it'll just tell you that, good man, were they here? While I, or were we in a different room when we were doing this? <laughs> so we've all had that experience, and I think, I think some of it may be sinful, and some of it is just the human condition of learning. That we have that learning is painful. For example, um, why is there the passage in Hebrews that says Jesus learned his obedience through suffering? Now you can't say Jesus was sinful, but yet it seems that the things he learned, he learned through suffering. Why did Jesus have to go through suffering to learn? Is there something that suffering is a necessary part of learning? I don't know. But there's stuff that's going on in the background here. I mean, it's not because... I don't think it can be simplistically answered by just saying, oh, if we would listen to the Holy Spirit more carefully. I think the problem, then is that it's not us as individuals. It's the corporate church. All the, the existing number of believers. So we're all somehow knitted together in this body. And uh, we do our best as individuals, of course, to listen to the Holy Spirit. But sometimes maybe... He can't teach us this because of something else going on over here. And he's not going to teach us this lesson until somebody else gets that lesson. And being passed down from generation to generation, from man to man, rather Well, yes. And that's, that's where tradition... Yeah. Yeah. 
And we all have that. And, and see, tradition can be good and bad. I mean, if you think about, if there wasn't a fall, and you had Adam and Eve have children, and they passed the family tradition on to those children, the, the idea is what tradition you can pass to your kids lets them start on your shoulders. So they don't have to relearn all the stuff you had to learn. And they can get going, oh, gee, you know, there's five different ways to bang your head on the wall. And I learned it from mom and dad that, you know, if I'm going to bang my head in the wall, I'll pick a new spot, but I'm not going to do the place they did. Well, that gets so fuzzy, as we know that we've had kids, because we see them sitting there going through the same thing that we went through. Duh, you know, what a waste of time. But that's because that's, the, that's where tradition could have been good had the tradition been truthful. But you're correct in saying that each individual can't accept things merely on the basis of tradition. We have to accept things because in our heart we have come to conclude that is God's word for us, period. That is truth. And that's why Christianity can never be um, inherited. And yet that's what happens so often is we inherit a tradition because we just, you know, we honor our parents and we naturally kind of go along with what they say and believe. But there comes a time when God holds us accountable for truth. He's not going to say, oh, gee, your mommy told you that. I don't think that's going to sail. Uh, all these good, some good questions. I know we've got, uh, yeah, we have time for a little bit more. So we can all drive out of the parking lot. What was that? Reading and revelation. Well, you really, I've got to say, just the way you teach, I was like, all of a sudden, starting to see things in revelation that just seem so clear now compared to what they used to be, so clear anyway. But one of the questions I had was, you had said that we were going to come back with Christ and rule during the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was reading through Revelation 16, and it uh, talks about the armies of God coming down on the back of the horses. And, and somebody had challenged that and said, hey, that, that could be the angels, not us. So I did a little study on the white linen thing and found out that for earlier in the chapter that that was a picture of the righteousness of Christ. So obviously that would be things, not angels. But is there any other place in the scriptures that you know of offhand where angels are portrayed as being clothed in Christ's righteousness or white linen? I think that where angels do occur, the, the question being, do angels have the white robes? You know, the white robe is an emblem that goes back into the Old Testament. One of the one of the clearest instances is in the book of Zechariah, where the high priest Joshua. I think it's in Zechariah nine, somewhere around there. Uh, where the high priest Joshua is, it's, it's a, the Hebrew text is very earthy when it wants to present a picture. And the picture that is being presented there of this priest is that his, government, his garments are covered with manure. And he's walking in the presence of God. And God tells the angels, get that, change his clothes. And the idea is that he was given, the priest was given a brand new garment. And that surely is the picture of the imputed righteousness. But as far as angels sharing in that, we have no theology 
anywhere in the scriptures that speak of redemption in the angelic realm. Angels probably are involved, you know, the good angels are involved because we saw in the passage tonight, right. Michael's having a big war. Yeah. yeah. And, and that war continues because you know in the book of Daniel when um, Gabriel was sent to give Daniel his answer, it took Gabriel three weeks to break through Iraqi defenses um, because that was the country that he was in at the time. Now, what does it mean when that happens? I mean, you know, you say, what the heck are these angels doing? That, that they're actually almost in physical contact with each other. And that's a thing that God hasn't seen fit to get us all spooked about, is what's going on in the angelic realm. We have these strange... I can think of two passages right off the bat that... Give, I've always puzzled at these passages because it's just like little tidbits God throws out. Like that passage in Corinthians that says, talks about women and their, their authority, position in the local church. And he says, do that because the angels are watching. He said, what? Now, we're talking about church polity here. What have angels got to do with that? Something. And then we get that passage in Ephesians 3 where it says the angels are sitting here watching and learning from us about the wisdom of God. So what are they learning about? They're learning something about God by watching us. So we're being watched by these unseen eyes, you know? And it gives you this funny feeling, well, why are they so interested in us? And it's not because of us, obviously. It's because of the God they worship. And they're interested in seeing what he's doing in our lives. So what, we, what God is doing in our lives is not just horizontally related to other believers. It's also related to these, these thousands of eyes around watching us. And I think that explains why sometimes there are weird things that happen in your life uh, where there's suffering uh, out of the clear blue. For example, what's the best example of that, by the way? The book in the Old Testament where suffering suddenly came into someone's life and it was... Job. And the whole first chapter in Job sets it up by saying there was a discussion in heaven. That's what led to this thing. And here, you know, Job's walking along and boom, the whole place is falling apart. And it was because of something that was going on up there. Now, true, God never does one thing. He always does 10,000 things at the same time, superficially. But what he was also doing is Job benefited in his own personal sanctification through that experience. But the Bible is clearly saying that the trigger had nothing really to do with Job in, in one sense. It was an argument Satan had with the Lord. So what's that all about? point that I, I want to leave you with tonight in all this, and, and the eschatological literature makes you think about this, passages like we read tonight about the war of the angels, is it enlarges your vision so that you see there's more to life than, than what we see. There are issues out there. And that's why we have to be careful to adhere to the Word of God. And when the Bible tells us to not use gimmicks to do things, just stick with the Word of God because 
well, as those God says, I'm not going to tell you all the reasons. You just do what I told you to do, how I told you to do it, relying on the resources I've given you. And don't try all these other the gimmick stuff. Because I think why he wants us to do those things is because of these other things that are going on around us that someday we'll understand. But right now we don't understand. But it's nice to be aware that there are bigger issues here than just what's going on with my car and my cat. Okay, well, uh, the snow's coming, so let's get home.